You may be seated. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. I see a few friendly faces out there this morning. If you're here with us for the first time at First Baptist, I just want to say welcome. I see some folks who've been out with illnesses, and we're glad to have you back as well. Welcome back. Good to see you guys again. We're continuing our way through the account of the crucifixion. And this morning we find our way to Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. So as is our custom before we dive in and begin to pick apart the scriptures and see what it is that the Lord has for us this morning, it's a good thing just to stop and pray and to seek his help. So if you would, let's just, let's just take this moment and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Now, Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. We thank you, Lord, for the life that he lived. We thank you, Father, for his miracles. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you so much, Lord, for all of the amazing things that he accomplished during his time on this earth. And most of all, we thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice on the cross and the salvation that he accomplished there. Father, as we approach that moment, that ultimate moment of victory, Lord, we know that there were many, many steps that led to that moment, many, many steps of faithfulness, many, many steps of obedience. All the way through, he was constantly beset by the temptations and the snares of the evil one, and yet he reigned over it all, he conquered over all, he resisted temptation, he remained faithful, and he ultimately won the victory for us. We just say thank you, Father, for your son. But Lord, even though the victory has been accomplished, we know it wasn't easy. And so we come to this passage this evening, Lord, and we look at what Jesus did on that night in Gethsemane and the struggle that he faced. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see and to understand exactly what was going on in the heart and in the mind of your precious son. That we would have a greater appreciation for the struggle, but that also we would learn by his example. Father, we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see your word and to receive all that you're saying to us this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The celebration has wound down, and we find ourselves now in a garden All is still. All is quiet. You can hear the swish of the wind through the trees. And if you stop and if you listen carefully, you can even hear the scraping of the gravel as feet are shuffling their way up the path. They are making their way to a garden, a special place where they were known to go and to visit and to frequent. It was a place of quietness. It was a place of solitude. It was a place where they routinely came when they wanted to be alone with the Father, when they wanted to talk to Him. Shadows are cast across the path 
by the warm glow of the moonlight. And across the Kidron Valley, if you look, you can still see the city aglow. Lights are on. There are still revelers making their way home through the streets. And torches sway back and forth, casting garish shadows and glimmers of light. And you can still hear the singing of the Hallel, the final hymn, as Passover is slowly and surely making its way to an end. Night is falling, but real work is about to be done. Though the city is slowly making its way to bed, and though some of the men here are slowly making their way to bed, There is one man, one God-man, who is going to come up against the greatest struggle that he has ever faced as a man, the greatest temptation. He will be victorious. The other 11, not so much. He is accompanied this evening, obviously, by Peter and James and John, He is accompanied as well, not only by those three, but also Philip and Andrew, Thaddeus and Bartholomew, Thomas, James, Matthew, and Simon the Canaanite. Just moments before he had warned them that one would betray him, Judas Iscariot is noticeably absent, but no one stops to say, hey, where's Judas? He has moments before just told them on this very night, you will all betray me. They had all assured him it would never happen, and yet here they are in this moment. Jesus is saying, I need to get away, and I need to pray. He will be victorious, and they will succumb to their temptation. What's the difference? Let's look closely and see. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, says they went to Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. The gospel of Luke tells us that it was a stone's throw. Now, some of you may have stronger arms than I do, but I did in fact go out into my cul-de-sac this last week and pick up a rock and chuck it to see how far I could throw it. So by Clay Camp's arm strength, by Clay Camp's reckoning, a stone's throw is anywhere from 60 to 80 feet, depending on the size of the stone and the mood of the one throwing it. Now, some of you are thinking, ah, come on, I can throw a rock further than that. That's fine. A stone's throw is a little bit further for you. We don't know exactly how far it is. But Jesus approaches, he gets all of his guys together. They're in this garden. It's in this beautiful place that's pruned, that's tended. It's a place that flourishes. It's green. It's watered. He gathers them together and he says, sit here. Here in this place, you guys stay. And I'm going to go over there but he doesn't go alone. He takes three with him. It says in verse 37, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John. He grabs these guys and it says, with them he went a stone's throw. So anywhere from 60 to 80 feet by Clay Camp's reckoning, they walked about this distance from the rest of the group. Now Jesus says to them, you guys watch and pray. Notice his expression. It's sorrowful even to death. And he makes a statement, remain here and watch with me. He is beginning to get very grieved. He is beginning to get very weighed down. It's very obvious that his soul is sorrowful, and he tells them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. He is being explicitly clear. I am in anguish. Now, if your friend says to you that they are in anguish, that they are depressed, that they are weighed down, even to the point of death, would that not deeply concern you? 
All throughout this evening, he's been telling them that he's going to be crucified. He's been telling them that his moment has arrived. He's been telling them that on this night they would betray him. But somehow they just don't take it seriously. He exhorts them. You stay here. You watch. You pray. He makes a statement. Stay here and watch with me. And then verse 39, it says, going a little bit further on, and according to the Gospel of Luke, he went another stone's throw. So he has the main group of disciples, the 11. He takes them to the garden. He says, everybody sit down. You guys sit here, and you watch, and you pray. He takes his three guys that he's closest with, uh, Peter, James, and John. He goes another stone's throw distance. He says to them, you guys, you stay here, and you pray. And then he himself goes another stone's distance further, and he will pray and get alone with God. What we gather from this that In the moment of greatest temptation, Jesus knows he has to be alone. He has to be all by himself. He needs to be with the Father. But just because Jesus needs to be alone with the Father in order to gain the strength necessary to overcome the temptation that is besetting him, he does not want to be unaccompanied. He wants to be alone, but not unaccompanied. He knows this struggle is entirely his own, but he wants his guys watching and praying for him. In verse 39, he falls down on his face and he says, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Old Testament, cup is a metaphor for judgment, specifically the judgment of God. It can be a metaphor for blessing, but it can also be a metaphor for judgment. In this particular instance, it is clear that Jesus doesn't want to drink the cup that is being handed to him by God the Father. His prayer is, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. I'm not excited about dying. And if there is any way, if there's any plan B, if there's any other way we can achieve what you want to achieve, let's go with that. Let's go with plan B. In this regard, Jesus is exactly like you and me. You can do it the hard way, or you can do it the easy way. And who among us wants to take the hard way if there's an easier way? Of course, the problem here is that the only way is the hard way. The only path to salvation goes right through that torture stick, that slow instrument of death that you and I refer to as the cross. He's praying, God, if there's another way, let's go with the other way. But he still surrenders himself back to the Father, Not as I will, but as you will. He's saying, God, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let's go with that. But I want to do what you will for me to do. I wonder what temptations came to him in that moment. I wonder what kinds of thoughts the enemy was whispering into his ear, what kinds of suggestions... Jesus, being God, would have known the horror that he was about to face. He would have known it intimately. Even though he had never experienced it as a man, he would have understood in his omniscience exactly what it was he was about to go through. 
But more than the physical pain, Jesus is holy and pure. He has never sinned. He has never done anything wrong. He has been perfect his whole life. The second person of the Trinity. He has not once done wrong. He has not once sinned. And now in this moment, he is facing stepping out of purity into, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He is facing the reality of taking upon himself the sins of the world. He is facing the reality of embracing all that you and I have done that is wrong, that is evil, that is impure. Do you suppose that the enemy was sitting there whispering in his ear, you're going to be wicked tomorrow. You're going to be bearing the weight of the sins of all mankind tomorrow. You who have never known wrong, you who have never experienced any kind of a break in your relationship with God the Father, you're going to have all of that tomorrow. Or perhaps Satan took it a step further and posed the question, what's worse Jesus, becoming defiled by sin or having your father bring the full weight of his divine wrath against you? To know not only are you now stained and scarred and marked by sin, but your own father is now coming to bring judgment upon you. All of these thoughts undoubtedly ran through his mind and so he turns back to God the Father in prayer and he says, I don't want to do this if there's any other way. Let's go with plan B. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is praying. And the manner of his prayer ought to be instructive to us. When we pray, how often do we look for a door out. God, open a door so that I don't have to face this difficulty. Or how often do we pray and we say, you know what, I know what the Bible says to do, but I'm just not going to do it because I don't quote unquote have a peace about this. How often do we justify disobedience by saying, I'm just not at peace about this. I introduce you to our Savior who looked for a door but knew that there was no door forthcoming and didn't even bother asking for a piece about what he was about to face. Sometimes obeying God will require suffering. And the thing of it is, what Jesus desires is right. He desires righteousness. He doesn't desire to be marked by sin. And Satan has just juxtaposed his desire for holiness and purity alongside the call of his father to go to the cross. Obeying the father, being righteous, being holy, being pure. Normally these things do not, bring, do not come into conflict with each other. For all of us, they will not come into conflict. But on this night, for this man, those two things were pitted against each other. And Jesus knew that God's will for him was to go to the cross bearing the sins of others so they could be set free. In that moment, when he's coming up face-to-face -face against the devil, when he's coming up face-to-face -face with the greatest of all temptations, do you know what he wanted? He wanted to be able, in the midst of his agony, in the midst of his prayer, just to be able to look back 
and to see his guys, to be able to look them in the whites of their eyes and to know I'm doing this for them. But when he looks back, he doesn't see that. He sees a bunch of guys sleeping. It says in verse 40, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And it was about an hour. The next verse says it was about an hour that Jesus spent in prayer. He came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he says to Peter, so, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus' statement to Peter is, come on, man. Can you not just pray? Can you not just sit here with me for one hour? Can you not just keep the watch? And then he exhorts him, he encourages him, he says, pray in order that you may not enter into temptation. And then he offers forth this statement, which has become a proverb throughout the churches, throughout the ages, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus' observation of Peter and the other disciples is simply this. He knows that they love him. He knows that they want to do what is right. He knows that they want to stick with him. They've all professed just moments before, we'll never deny you. They're trusting in their own strength. They're thinking, we're going to stay true to Jesus, but Jesus Jesus is knowing the only way you get through these temptations is through prayer, and he looks back, and they're all sleeping. They're not praying, and his exhortation to them is, I know that you guys have a heart for this. You want to do what is right. The spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. It is powerless in your own strength. You don't have what it takes to overcome the battle that is quickly approaching. So his instruction to them is, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You know, when we do Bible study, when we come together for care groups, all too often we'll be reading through a a section of Scripture and we'll see Jesus doing something and facing down some sort of struggle or some sort of difficulty. And routinely in care groups, when we encounter those passages, we say, yeah, like, he just got it and he just did what was right. And somebody will say, yeah, we should be like Jesus, and we should follow his example, and we should strive to do things the way that Christ would have us to do things. And invariably, somebody will say, yeah, but he's Jesus, meaning we can't do it the way that Christ did it because we're not God in the flesh. We don't have the same resources that God has. Now, When we look at the person of Christ, we know that he is God, God fully in the flesh. And so as we read about this encounter here in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he's facing the ultimate temptation, he's coming up against the greatest spiritual struggle that any man would ever know on this earth. We are tempted to conclude that the way he was able to be successful through the midst of this temptation was simply by tapping in to that divine power which was inherent to his nature as the second person of the Trinity. He was able to overcome because he was God, right? And there's scriptural backing for this. Don't flip there, but just listen. In James chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, James makes the statement, sorry, verse 15, is, James makes the statement, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we know that Jesus is God in the flesh, 
And James says God can't be tempted. So when we read that, we say, okay, so Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. Therefore, he can't necessarily be tempted. But if that's true, then that makes everything that he's saying here in the Garden of Gethsemane just a drama, just an act, just something that he's putting on for the observation of you and me. He's not really struggling with going to the cross. He's not really toying with the idea in his mind of disobeying God and running away from the crucifixion if it's true that he can't be tempted. When we think of Jesus, we think that it's impossible for him to be tempted. It's impossible for him to experience weaknesses the same way as us because he's God. So he can't truly, this is the thinking that we sometimes engage in, he can't truly identify with us because he doesn't experience the same weaknesses and he's not prone or subject to the same temptations that we are. But here's the problem with that. There's another scripture verse, this time from Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews makes the statement, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavenly places, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Now, James says God can't be tempted. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus, whom we know as God, experienced every temptation that you and I experience. He faced down every trial that you and I faced down. Now, we know Jesus is God, and we know God can't be tempted. We know Jesus was tempted. So now we've entered into a paradox of sorts. How do we reconcile these two things? A theologian by the name of Herbert Banvick described the kenosis this way. Some of you, your eyes immediately glaze over. Kenosis, what did you just say? It's from the Greek word kenao. It means the joining essentially together of a human nature and a God nature. Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes the statement that he emptied himself, referencing Jesus, he emptied himself by taking on human form. What Paul means by that is not that Jesus lost, that the second person of the Trinity lost any of his divine attributes, but that he humbled himself, embracing and adding to his divine nature a human nature. And there are a lot of problems that we sometimes toy with in our minds as followers of Christ. We tend to think that he had the body of a man, but he had the mind of God. That's most common what we encounter. We somehow think that Jesus had the mind of God, but it's just the body of a man. But that's not true. The scriptures are clear. He was fully man and fully God, which means he had a human intellect. He had a human personality. He had human emotions. He had human desires, and those desires were conjoined with the divine person. It is a mystery. The best analogy, the best illustration that I have ever encountered, again, is presented by Babing. He says, regarding the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, his will could be likened to a rock-solid bar of steel. And then you have the man, Christ Jesus, the human man with the human will, and that human will could be likened as to a copper wire that was wrapped around 
the will, the iron steel will of the divine person. So that you have a human who is fully human and God who is fully God conjoined together in one person, the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Temptation is the effort by Satan to lure mankind by appealing to his human desires and for the fulfillment of those desires in a way that is contrary to the will of God. So you have the divine will which cannot be tempted. And then you have the human will wrapped around that divine will. And in a sense, what we are encountering in the person of Christ is Satan approaching Jesus and trying to pull that human will apart from the divine will, trying to entice that human will to do something that is contrary to the divine will. Jesus resisted, but I want to take it a step further. He resisted the temptation without drawing upon the power of his divine nature. This is where things get really interesting. All throughout the Gospels, as you walk with Christ, you will find on time and time again, on every occasion, he uses his divine power to bring blessing to all those around him, yet he himself never takes advantage of those divine resources for himself. For example, he goes down to John the Baptist. He gets baptized. What's, what happens? He comes up out of the water, and all of the scriptures say that the Spirit, like a dove, descended and rested upon him. And they will all say that right after the baptism, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness in which he fasted for 40 days, and immediately Satan came to him and began to tempt him with all manner of different things. And Jesus continued to push back against all of those temptations. One of the temptations that Satan confronted Jesus with was, hey, you're hungry. Tell this stone to turn into some bread and eat and be filled. And Jesus refused. He would not use his power for his own advantage. He would always use his power for the blessing of those around him. We find this throughout the scriptures. Take the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He is weary. He is tired. He is thirsty. He could instantly have just said, hey, chip her up, man, and be filled and be, you know, have your, quen- your thirst quenched. He could have easily have done that. And yet, when the Samaritan woman approaches, he says, would you give me some water? Of course, that dialogue is going to lead into a whole other discussion. But time and again, we find Jesus not using his powers for himself. We find time and again, as a man, the temptation was always there for him to take a shortcut, to take the easy way out. But God lived his life as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus in the flesh, fully as a man. He walked every step, every journey he took. He did it totally as a man. Which is how Paul is able to say in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself and took upon himself the nature of, the flesh of a man. The reason, now listen to me carefully, the reason Jesus 
could not sin is not the same reason, ultimately, that Jesus did not sin. Say it again. The reason Jesus could not sin, namely that his will was conjoined with the second person, the divine will of the Trinity, and God cannot be tempted, so ultimately Jesus could not have fallen, but the reason he could not sin was not ultimately the reason he did not sin. You say, how do you, how do you figure, preacher? I want to illustrate this in two different ways. Anybody here enjoy math? Just love to sit down and take an algebra test? Precious few of you. Okay. <laughs> now imagine your algebra teacher says to you, or your math teacher says to you, okay, let's have a math test. It's time. You've studied. You're ready. We're going to go. You can use calculators. You can utilize a calculator in order to take this math test. You have been given an advantage. You've been given a digital device that can compute numbers much, much quicker and much more efficiently than your human intellect can. So you have your calculator. It's there. But you say, you know what? I'm not going to use the calculator in order to take this test. You sit down. You say, I've studied. I've applied myself. I've learned all of the concepts. I'm familiar with all of the formulas. And you take the test, and you pass the test. You hand it in. The teacher grades it, marks it, hands it back, and you got 100%. You're talking to your friend. Your friend says, well, yeah, you got 100% because she let you use a calculator. To which you respond, and you say, yes, I could have used it. I could have used the calculator in order to pass the test, but I did not. The reason you could have ace the test is not the reason in which you did in fact ace the test. Put it another way. It's become a popular thing as of late to swim the English Channel. The English Channel at its narrowest point, this is unbelievable to me, it's 32 kilometers. Who would want to go out and swim 32 kilometers? Apparently a lot of people want to do this. It's become vogue. They do it. They go. They start in Britain. They swim across the narrowest point there, the French cha- swimming across the English Channel over to the French side. It's 32 kilometers, the fastest it's ever been done. Believe it or not, the record was set not too long ago, 2007, by a fellow by the name of Peter Stoyachev. He was from Bulgaria, and he set the world record for swimming the English Channel at 32 kilometers. He did it in six hours, 57 minutes, and, t- and 20 seconds. Seven hours swimming. Who wants to do that? Some people do. Did you know that people who swim the English Channel never go alone? There is always a boat that follows them. The boat stays at a little distance, so as you're swimming, if you get tired and you start to run out of energy and you begin to realize that you're not going to make it, in order to keep you from drowning, the guys on the boat will reach in and grab you and pull you out of the water. Now, if you were to say to Peter Stoyachev, the only reason you were able to swim the English Channel in six hours and 57 minutes and 20 seconds was because you had a boat there watching you every step of the way. The reason you were successful was because the boat kept you from failing. Peter Stoyachev would be deeply offended. Yeah, he would not drown. The ultimate failure was prevented. He could not actually drown because the boat was watching him. But the reason he could not drown was not the reason he did, in fact, succeed. They are two different things. And so as we approach Jesus, we find that in his life, he was ultimately successful in everything that he did. He could not ultimately fail because he was conjoined with the second person of the Trinity. But just because he could not fail, that reason is not the same reason that he did not fail. Throughout the scriptures, 
If you follow Christ closely, if you follow all of the different struggles he came up against, all of the different spiritual battles that he faced, all of the temptations that beset him, you will find there are certain things that he goes to over and over and over again. You'll find, ultimately, when you look closely at the life of Christ, he always depended upon the power of the Holy Spirit. He refers to it infrequently, but when he does, it is clear in the context of those passages that he is looking for strength from outside of himself, from the third person of the Trinity. The second thing is, he is relying on the truth of Scripture. He routinely responds and comes back to the temptations and the different suggestions that are put forth, and he routinely will say, it is written. His confidence is not in the dialogue or the discussion or all these novel new ideas that are being thrown out there. His confidence is ultimately in what the Word of God says. Third thing, prayer. All of the gospel accounts record that Jesus routinely got away and he prayed and he shared his struggles with the Father and he asked that the Lord's will would be done. He was routinely seeking intimacy with his Father in heaven and he was routinely looking for guidance and direction through that relationship. And lastly, we see it here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Although he does not need it, being the second person of the Trinity, he sought out the fellowship and the companionship of his brothers. Those are the four things. He looked to the power of the Holy Spirit. He looked to the Word of God. He looked to prayer. And he looked to the fellowship and the company of those who were believers around him. Now let me ask you this question. Jesus was completely successful. He did not utilize his divine power in order to be successful. He utilized those four things over and over and over again. What tools were available to Christ that are not also available to you and me? Do you have access to the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. By placing your faith in Christ, you do. Do you have access to the scriptures? We got scriptures flowing all throughout this church. We got them on the table in the foyer. There is no reason why any of you in this room should not have your own copy. If you find yourself here this morning without a copy of Scripture, you will find one in the pew back right in front of you. Take it, keep it, it's yours. What about prayer? For those of us who have trusted in Christ, we have access to the Father. We have an intimacy with Him that we can have through prayer. What about the encouragement of our brothers and sisters? Look around. We're here to encourage you. So all of those things, though, would require that you take advantage of them. Time and again, when I'm talking with people who are struggling with different temptations in their life, they tell themselves that they're incapable of overcoming those temptations. They tell themselves that, and perhaps there is an enemy who whispers that into their ear. But if you trust in Jesus, if you draw strength from the Holy Spirit, if you utilize the truth of scriptures, if you give yourself to prayer, and if you look to the body of Christ for encouragement, 
There is no reason that you cannot be successful in overcoming the temptations which plague you. A number of years ago, there was a fellow, this was when I was associate pastor at Cedar Heights Baptist Church in Texas. His name was Chris. He had given himself, unfortunately, to, to drugs. He was, he was hopelessly addicted to cocaine apart from Christ. He came forward. He said, this has got a hold on my life. I have tried on multiple times. I know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I know what it says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where it says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I know I am poisoning my body. I am cutting short the life that God has given me. Time and again, time and again, he sought to be delivered from that addiction. And time and again, he failed. And when I asked him, why is it that you failed? He said, the pull got too strong and I knew that I could not succeed. To which I then responded, where did you come to that certain conclusion? Who told you you couldn't succeed? When you were in that moment of overwhelming desire for the drugs, when you were faced with that temptation in that moment, you surrendered to it, but it wasn't because you were incapable of overcoming it. It was because you believed you couldn't. My brothers and sisters, Jesus has come. He has died on the cross, and he has come in order to set us free. We will all be beset by temptations. We will all fail at multiple points in our life. But do not think for one second that the salvation Jesus purchased for you on the cross was some sort of a discounted half salvation in which you know that you can go to heaven, but you cannot have deliverance in this life from sin. He absolutely died not only to secure your citizenship above, but to rescue you here and now. The question is not can you, but to whom and to where will you go for the power to overcome? Now, ultimately, these guys failed. In just a few hours, Peter is going to find himself in the courtyard outside of the high priest's home, and a little servant girl is going to come and say, hey, you knew him too, didn't you? And he's going to begin to deny Christ and invoke curses on himself. Should have been praying. Should have been watching. And here is the moment of greatest instruction. Jesus, knowing that the temptation was about to come, says to Peter, watch and pray. You know the enemy is coming. You know the temptation is about to come. If any of you have ever been addicted to anything, if any of you have ever been beset by some particular temptation, you know when those temptations come. You know there's a certain part of the day. You know there's a certain website. You know there's a certain street that you can walk down, and at the corner of that street, there's something there, and you know that when you go to that place, you know that in that moment, you're going to feel the pull on your soul. Well, what is the instruction that Jesus gives? Watch and pray. In Proverbs, Solomon writes, the young man strays past the house where the adulteress lives, not knowing that death waits for him there. The implication being, don't go to that house. Don't walk down that street corner. And Jesus brings that teaching to his deepest point right here. Watch, see it, 
pray and pray that you will not enter into it. In other words, if there's a place you go, if there's a thing that can come upon you that begins to pull on your soul, that begins to lead you into temptation, you are to watch it, avoid it, and pray that you would not go towards it. Jesus comes back. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He's going to go to the cross. Even now, he's surrendering. Your will be done. Verse 43, again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Now, if anyone had ample reason to kick these guys, like, wake up, wake up. I'm getting ready to die for you tomorrow. You could at least pray a little bit. Jesus is totally justified to wake these guys up. But he doesn't. Did you notice that? He came and he found them, verse 43, a second time sleeping, their eyes were heavy, verse 44, so leaving them. He doesn't wake them up. This is the sweetest part of this passage. Routinely, I will go in in the morning to wake my daughters up. I will go into their bedroom to get them ready. It's time to get ready for school, and I'll open the door, and they'll still be asleep, laying soundly in their beds. They've got their covers all in total disarray. Their jammies are all pulled all over the place. I mean, it's, it's absolute craziness. But there's such a sweet and serene and happy look on their face. They're at peace. And the thing of it is, they're sleeping there, in a bed that I've provided, in a home that I have put over their heads. They're going to eat breakfast that morning at the table, food that I've paid for, that I'm giving to them. All of their needs are being met, and they're sitting there, and they're sleeping, and they're in sweet, serene peace. And I think to myself, I don't want to wake them up. I take joy in watching them rest. Jesus, he knows they're going to fail. He knows that what they really ought to be doing is praying. Praying that they would not enter into temptation. But when he finds them overcome a second time, he reassures himself on the fact that where they will fail, he will not. Jesus is always victorious. And so as we come to a close this morning, I know that we're all oftentimes overcome by different temptations and different struggles. And we should all be praying and asking God to deliver us from those things, but at the end of the day, even when we fail, we rest in the ultimate salvation that Christ brings to us where we will succumb, he always conquers. You can trust in the ultimate deliverance and salvation of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what Jesus did in the garden. We thank you, Father, for facing the temptations of the enemy. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that he overcame that great temptation. 
He has finished in Gethsemane. He is now on his way to the court to be tried and ultimately convicted. And Father, as we follow along with him in those footsteps, as we see the path that he takes, we pray, God, that we would learn just exactly how much it is that you love us. And we pray, God, that you would remind us time and again that our salvation is not the result of our own effort, but it is completely and totally provided for us by what your son did on the cross. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.